Welcome to the Transform Your Teaching Podcast. The Transform Your Teaching Podcast is a service of the Center for Teaching and Learning at Cedarville University in Cedarville, Ohio. We seek to inspire higher education faculty to adopt innovative teaching and learning practices. Thanks for joining our conversation. Welcome back to Transform Your Teaching. My name is Jared Piles. Today we are having another faculty conversation with Dr. Vladimir Bratik. Uh, unfortunately, I was unable to attend this recording because I had a cold and didn't have a voice. And as you can imagine, a uh, audio podcast without a voice is rather ineffective. So enjoy this conversation that Rob had with Dr. Vladimir Bratik. Well, welcome, and thank you for joining us today, Dr. Bratic. And if I did not say that properly, please, uh, please feel free to correct me. Very close. Very close. Okay. Well, well I'll take that. I'll take yeah. that. Um, usually we have uh, Jared Piles in here helping and uh, helping to host, but it's just me and you today. And I appreciate the time. Well, just to get us started, uh, what do you teach, and and what is your discipline? So I teach in the uh, communication studies department, and I come to that through uh, mass communication. I uh, my PhD is in mass communication, media studies. I kind of arrived through all that through the uh, multidisciplinary uh, approaches. My master's was in international relations and communications, and I my undergraduate was at a sort of a teaching and pedagogy. So I've always been very. Um, welcoming to the multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I develop my thinking and my sort of intellectual path is by embracing various different angles and disciplines and sort of combining them into a synthesis of the best of. So the way that I teach in today, in, in, in a class of today, is to basically suggest that one way of intelligence that, that still resonates and will get students uh, with a significant advantage is the ability to know how to pro- uh, process multiple different perspectives and disciplines and synthesize it into a uh, complex and nuanced thinking. So that's, okay. I, I usually tend to uh, make a joke that I'm not a professor of communication, that I'm a professor of complexity and nuance. Okay. So that affects your philosophy of education, obviously. Uh, here at Cedarville University, we, we come from a, a you know, a biblical worldview, and I understand that's probably not necessarily where where you come from, but in terms of your philosophy of education, wh- what is that? Can you sum that up for us? This took me a while to come to a, have a firm uh, philosophy of education that can be explained within a sentence, but kind of can be summed up as uh, I'd like to teach students how to think rather than what to think. Coming from my own sort of personal background and arriving to uh, understand what is knowledge helped me a lot in establish who I am intellectually. But when I look at students and, you know, kids of my own, when I'm looking at what is useful to them is I found that transferring that knowledge that for me makes the most sense right back at them with this sort of transfer of knowledge educational method does not really help them as much as if I actually teach them how to think. Mm. So, you know, I sent my own uh, college student to university and with one sentence of advice, and that was, uh, don't go over there to to learn from your professors about the things that they believe in. Learn how to learn. Do you have the ability to 
in four years, figure out how do we arrive at knowledge? How do you get knowledge? How do you generate knowledge? Do you have that ability? Do you have the process? Do you have a medical mission? Do you have the skills of knowing how to know? Mm. So when I teach, I basically, I try to be very transparent about what it is to know, how it is, how do we go about knowing and teach those skills rather than impart these kind of like, you know, words of wisdom from the old man to the youth about, you know, this is how the world is. So, um, yes, again, I get it to this, um, I, I teach them the pro metacognition process of how to think through things. And I insist that they are, must arrive at a, at the, the final process is not certainty, but complexity and nuance. So this kind of process of understanding how to arrive to knowledge and arriving at a complexity as a desired outcome, rather kind of seeking this certainty, um, is the kind of philosophy that I have that I've developed over quite a few years, actually. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think that will uh, give us some good background as we have this conversation about ChatGPT. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting. I think your article was featured on a faculty focus or, um, and I may be saying that improperly. Was it faculty focus or was faculty it? Focus, yeah. yeah. So. And many of our faculty here on campus uh, get that, and we'll read read those articles. And and uh, one of our faculty members uh, read it and sent it to us, and um, we were um, intrigued by what you had to to say through your article. And um, I know it it spoke to some of the angst and some of the thinking that that many of our faculty members here at Cedarville were were thinking through, and and it expressed in some degree. Uh, my own and, and also Jared's thinking in terms of how we approach ChatGPT. So to that, what has been your experience with ChatGPT? Oh, I quite welcomed it. As you could probably understand from the, from the article that I wrote, I am rather optimistic when it comes down to the impact of technology. This comes from my you know, area of studies. I'm a media or mass communication scholar. So historically, I've studied how technologies change societies. Uh, I experienced these by using them myself. So I usually am rather positively uh, oriented towards new technology and the impact of new technology. And I liked what ChatGPT has done. Granted, it's only been 10 months of uh, ChatGPT, but I've anticipated this uh, quite a while ago. Since 2018, I've been teaching a class that is rather provocative class um, that's called uh, Mind Reading Robots Are Coming. And uh, this class that anticipates the arrival of artificial intelligence, this is, I've developed this class in 2017, so I'm sort of vindicated now. I don't think there is, when I first started teaching the class, this was a provocative statement to make, uh, rather now in 2023, my ring robots are almost kind of taken to be uh, uh, a normal expectation of all of this. So I've always been somebody who's been looking into the new technologies as uh, it, from a sort of more optimistic uh, point of view. And I welcome it and I welcome it in my class and I welcome it in my private life. And I try to teach in such a way. However, again, embracing this idea of the complexity and, and, and sort of understanding its pitfalls, you know, I, I start with that in mind. The best way, I guess, for us to look at this is to understand it as a, a piece of technology. Uh, 
uh, and then kind of compare it to the other technological inventions that we've had so far and then compare to what extent how those technological developments affected society. So from that standpoint, it's ChatGPT is like other technologies that came before it. It's like uh, the wheel, the plow, the fire, the things that in our pre-historical society we invented in those changed societies. It is a lot of people think it's kind of can be compared to the invention of the internet or the printing press. I think the analogies there are true. They're, it's kind of useful to be thinking of it as a as a as a tool, as a technological invention that ends up having profound change to society. So now, if we place it in that context, I think it's easier to talk about it because we have some historical um, context and we can anticipate for it to be working certain kind of directions, and then we can talk about its advantages or possible disadvantages that it may be. I think I would agree with you in terms of comparing it to the printing press or even the internet in terms of how both of those technologies have changed our society in, in, in very large ways. What I'm curious about from your perspective is how, you know, shifting is this technology? Do you think we're going to see significant changes in society even more so than we've seen with the internet? Well, people that study this and try to make predictions are the people that I rely on. I don't necessarily pretend that I can, you know, I, I have some kind of prediction in the future, but I rely on other people when in their best sort of um, predictions about what this may end up being. And a lot, a lot of people who are not necessarily either optimists or pessimists, they think that the the, the the impact of this technology is so profound, it is going to be unlike anything that we have seen before, because unlike uh, the wheel, the fire, the, the printing press or the internet, those are all technologies that were used by humans exclusively for human needs. Humans were in charge of them, and uh, they were basically capable of directing them. This is the only technology that is capable of producing knowledge on its own. It can run itself. It can produce new things. We've never had a piece of technology. We've never had anything else on Earth that was capable of that kind of uh, uh, authoritative and uh, uh, that, that sort of direction and creativity. That's why people believe that it has potential to do quite a lot of uh, significant changes that might actually cause us to be perhaps even abandoned in our development, that this technology is going to sort of develop on its own and that we will sort of not, if we don't put it in, in uh, uh, accordance to our own needs and values that may sort of leave us behind and pursue their own goals, which is why a lot of people are trying to sort of align these technologies with human needs. Uh, I think that's a sort of futuristic kind of interesting discussions that are philosophical in nature. And I think it's they're very appealing. And I think, but I, ultimately, I don't think they're very instructive for us where we are today. I think um, those are kind of science fiction movie entertainment kind of scenarios. I think we should be dealing with the scenario of today and five, seven years from now. I think we should be concerned with the life in 2030, what is... What is what is the office like in twenty thirty? What is uh, what is uh, outside environment in twenty thirty? What is 
parenting like in 2030? What is voting and consuming like in 2030? And how does ChatGPT or smart intelligence or uh, machine intelligence, how does that facilitate or not? Uh, how, how, I think those are much more concrete questions that we can debate. I think that the, the future of the next seven years is we can see how that sort of unfold. So I, I, I thought I'd like to think about the office work of a uh, of my of my student who has graduated college and is in their first job in 2030. What does the world look like for them? Well, that kind of leads us also to another conversation as we talk about what does the world look like for students. I think their office, you know, is one, but what does the world look like for future students and faculty when it comes to you know, what's education going to look like with ChatGPT? How are we going to facilitate that? What uh, challenges and opportunities do you see in the future in 2030? So that- yeah, so that was my biggest criticism in the article that I wrote. I don't think that the people who are capable of answering that question, they don't seem to be people that are currently teaching in academia. And this is my critique from the article when I suggest that academia is not the most responsive environment when it comes down to, to new technologies. New technologies tend to challenge things, tend to challenge the sources of knowledge, tend to challenge uh, knowledge itself. And, and academia at best moves slowly to respond to that. And at worst, ends up being adversarial to the new technologies, which is what I think we're seeing right now. If I'm looking at responses of the academia to ChatGPT over the last nine months, I see a lot of adversarial response. I see a lot of, um, as a matter of fact, anecdotally, if I look around my institutions or uh, some other institutions that I've been in in, uh, conversations with, the most uh, common response to ChatGPT is do not use it or you will be accused of plagiarism. So this is the most progressive institution when it comes down to to knowledge in the United States is telling its students to basically not use it or they will be found to be plagiarizing. So Mm. uh, that's why, again, I'm rather critical of academia and their response and their slow movement to embrace these things. I know you had a podcast on adopting adapting or, and I think our, our academic response has been the third option. I think they've abandoned. I think they, they, they are sort of working, uh, with eyes closed, hoping Mm. that this is just a trend that is going to dissipate or something like that. So not, 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 I'm not very optimistic when it comes down to how we end up embracing, um, or engaging with technology to be able to do something to change our teaching. And I think it is an absolute necessity that our teaching changes in response to the invention of this technology. We can no longer teach the way we used to teach this transfer of knowledge, big lecture, um, multiple choice. These are outdated methods of teaching. We need to engage in new discussions and understand how this needs to happen, having GPT technology in your hand at all times. So it seems like what I'm hearing from you is we need to teach people how to think based on your philosophy, which, quite frankly, doesn't necessarily uh, go against the philosophy here at Cedarville. We have, and if you've listened to any of our podcasts, you'll, you'll hear the term servant teaching. And so our teaching is always aimed at serving 
each other, uh, which we derive from a, a biblical principle. And as a part of that, you know, it, it gave it gave life to that whole conversation of adopt, adapt, or abandon. We come down with, you know, we come down on the side of adapting it, right? Saying no to those things that devalue humanity and saying yes to those things that help help us grow and help us flourish. And so, you know, I think here at Cedarville, I've seen a lot more of that than I've seen of, you know, what you just portrayed. And so I, I do find it interesting, and again, it seems this way to me based on what you're saying, that, that we're rowing in a very similar stream. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's good to hear that again, but I, I have I have contacts with other universities. I teach at one. I have a daughter at university, and, and I, I hear from students, I hear from faculty, and I hear from administration and staff. And uh, it's only been nine months, so I guess there's still time, but I can basically judge based on what I've heard so far that GPT itself did not have a profound impact on day-to-day life in a classroom. Mm in the fall semester of 23. Uh, I, I, I don't doubt that people are thinking about it. I don't doubt that people want to do things with it, but we are definitely, we have not responded to it. Mm. Uh, our primary response is to basically say, do not use it. But again, even like I, I make this argument, you know, how well have we as an academia uh, responded to to internet? Mm. How have we changed our teaching knowing that the internet became available? I mean, how did we respond to the emergence of Wikipedia? If you just take that as a case study, we've we've shamed Wikipedia. And to some extent, even today, we're shaming Wikipedia. We're We're teaching students not to look at Wikipedia. That it's some kind of source that is beyond repute. And we now have come to a society that Wikipedia is one of the most reliable, the most um, elaborate and the most accurate sources online. And so what is Wiki, what is, what is academic response to Wikipedia been since early 2000 is don't use it. Don't cite it. Don't look at it. So mm-hmm. again, this is what I mean when I say we are not necessarily the most embracive bunch when it comes down to uh, new technologies. And I'm afraid that we're treating chat GPT in the same way that we've treated Wikipedia. Knowing what we know now about Wikipedia, we would not be in. Tr- we wouldn't be treating it the way you know we have, right? I mean, um, don't we agree here that we are much? We've opened ourselves much more towards Wikipedia now. Well, yeah, I'd say a lot of people. Um, I mean, you know, I've even seen it in some dissertations that I've read, where they've referenced articles in inside of Wikipedia, uh, and I think again, just like with ChatGPT or any technology. And any source of knowledge, for that matter, you've got to use discernment, and you've got to use common sense, and again, thinking strategies and evaluation strategies that uh, look for look for those things that are biased, look for those things that are not uh, accurate, and then be able to find why they aren't, uh, and make sure that you you deal with those sources like you would any other source. So I think that's very instructive, right? So what you just said, basically, definitely use it, start with it, use Mm -hmm. its sources. It's pretty good. But then bring all the human characteristics, human traits that you have acquired in your education to test it, ask questions about it, Mm -hmm. Uh, think, think, is this all that I want? 
probe it, analyze it, do things to it. So what what's happening here using basically the technology with its own strengths and coming at it with our own critical thinking strengths about it. And when those two things combine, they tend to produce better results than either one of these on their own, which is exactly what I suggest we should be doing with ChatGPT. Yeah. Again, adapt it, bring it to classroom, ask how it can be used. Don't think that it replaces human humanity or cognitive work, but think how it can enhance cognitive work. Mm. what it can do to help our thinking, what in this metacognitive process can it do and what it cannot do, which part of this I can rely on it, how can I use it to help me come up with a new idea, summarize or contextualize a piece of writing, can it do something to instruct me in certain kind of uh, what directions that I'm missing, do I have blind spots, are there things that I can use this assistant, and I think this is useful for us to be thinking this is a uh, this is a cognitive uh, machine is, is works as an assistant. What can this assistant do to help me in my cognitive and emotional and social process mm -hmm. of me arriving to my own knowledge? And I think if we approach it in that kind of way, we wouldn't think of it as a competitor that is going to replace work. We would think of it as an assistant, which right. is why my article is called learning to think with technologies or alongside technologies. Right. I think, uh, I think we agree on that. And it's interesting to me, I've seen some of our faculty here doing that, that very thing, bringing ChatGPT into the classroom and actually having students evaluate it. Evaluate, you know, one, they do a project with it. And I know of one faculty member who has them write a piece themselves, and then they have ChatGPT write the same piece. Uh, and then they may have it write that piece in their style, you know, like post what you had and then have it rewrite it. And it's interesting to me uh, when they're forced to use it. In other words, the the option for using it to cheat is kind of taken away by forcing them to actually use it as part of the assignment. And a couple of the surveys that we've had after the class, the students have discussed how they did not like it writing for them, that they felt cheated by it writing for them and that they weren't going to use it to write their papers because they were going to use it for brainstorming. They were going to use it, you know, to inquire about certain ideas or thoughts. And, uh, but in terms of writing, they wanted to keep that for themselves. I really thought that was an interesting, and that's anecdotal, right? That's just the experience that we've had in a, in one class. Um, but I know I personally had that experience. When I had it right for me, I was like, I don't want it writing for me. I can use it to help me synthesize some, some different theories that I've wanted to synthesize together, uh, but there's nothing out in the literature that synthesizes that. And, you know, as an academic, that can be very difficult to even have that conversation on an academic forum and get feedback uh, from other PhDs in those particular fields, because usually they don't come out of their silos and talk to one another. And so even having ChatGPT help you explore those, those ideas, like technology acceptance, uh, Kahneman-Tversky's prospect theory, and crossing those two theories and seeing where they intersect and what one speaks to it, uh, to the situation versus another. And, and I know I may be nerding out for our listeners 
So you'll no, have to go exactly, look those things exactly up. That's exactly what we're saying. This is, again, if it, if it helps you think through things, it cannot be cheating. It's a tutor. It's an assistant. It's a friend. Anytime you go to a friend and ask them a question, what do you think of this? W what do you know about these things? Or what are commonalities? Or if you go to a writing center or a tutor center and you ask a tutor something, you wouldn't consider that to be cheating. You're thinking, you're thinking how to problem solve alongside other things, one of which is the technology. Other things are human beings. So every time we basically incorporate and we ask questions in a learning process, we're relying on other things or extended selves. We rely on, on things beyond our own memory, our own experiences to help us come to things. That's not cheating. That's just enhancing the thinking process. So we yeah. shouldn't be doing it that way. But may I add, again, we are still dealing with a lot of courses and professors who, who lecture for a semester and assign a 15-pager, 15 15-page 15 paper at the end uh, that basically can be done by chat GPT. And I argue that if 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 your paper can completely be written by chat GPT and if if that paper is the assignment a whole term assignment for which you ask 15 pages and if chat GPT can do it the problem there I wouldn't say is technology the problem is pedagogy mm. we should not be assigning 15 page papers that can be simply uh without ever checking with students how they're doing, do they know the elements of a cognitive process to arrive to a 15-page paper? How do you write one? Do you have skills and abilities to do that? How can I strengthen your abilities to think beyond? How can I enhance your dialectical thinking? Can I do something to your method to improve it? Is there a way that you can structure those arguments in sequential steps? Can I scaffold that for you? Those are, those are kind of assignments that we should be working with rather than bring me 15 pages at the end of the semester. I mean, that kind of assignment begs for ChatGPT to come in and just say, here it is. Yeah. So if your teaching can be replaced by ChatGPT, then I think it's time for us to consider, are we teaching correctly? And mm -hmm. what we should be doing to teach differently? And what does 2030 office and social and civic environment requires of a student. Mm. So I think those are corrections. And are you teaching to that student? Or are you teaching on the best principle of the 18th century enlightenment, which was fine in its time, but it no longer is this a valid or realistic environment? Are you teaching to the needs of students from 2030 mm. who are going to be living in this environment and breeding this environment? They're going to be they're going to be dealing with smart watches, smart toasters and fridges. They're going to be dealing with portraits on the wall that will speak to them. Not, It's not going to be their ancestors, but it's going to be smart AI assistants who are going to be speaking to them. We all live in houses filled with Alexa and Series. Yeah. Are we teaching kids to operate in those environments? Not just as workers. Again, I say as voters, as consumers, as parents. Do you know how to handle those technologies? Do those technologies take or are, do, do, you, do you teach those kids to be able to collaborate with them so you can actually get something from this? Right now, we're letting technologies take attention, take a time, take our kids, take society in completely directions wherever they want to go. And we are not learning to basically have a defensive mechanism in which Kids now know how to use technologies to advance their own their own needs and wants. Wow.
Dr. Bradich, this has been a wonderful time together. Uh, I know sure. I've enjoyed it and uh, and look forward to hopefully communicating with you further. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was good. Thanks for, uh, for this conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Transform Your Teaching Podcast. Please subscribe or follow us on your preferred podcast platform. For more information, you can email us at ctlpodcast at cedarville.edu. Please consider subscribing to our blog, Focus, found at cedarville.edu forward slash focus blog.